0: Welcome to Right Now Workshop Podcast, where you can write a book and change the world. I'm your host, Kitty Buchholz, and this is Episode 88, The Fascinating World of Mystical Realism, an interview with Sean Smucker, coming to you on Thursday, July 12, 2018. I have been reading Sean's book for about a week, but I've been moving into hopefully our final wonderful home for about two weeks, so I'm only about a third of the way through it the edge of over there is so interesting. It's just got my imagination tangled up in knots and I I think I'm dreaming about some of the different things that are happening in the story. It's been so fun for me to read and makes me crazy. I haven't finished it yet. So my interview with Sean is full of a lot of excitement on my part. So I hope you enjoy that. I was almost a little embarrassed at a couple of points where I was just like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. It really is. It's a really interesting book. And it just came out last week, totally brand new, totally ready for you to read. I hope that you enjoy the interview. Sean's got some great stories and some really great advice for writers. So I think you're really going to enjoy it. And have a great week. Happy writing. Today's guest is Sean Smucker. In 2017, Sean introduced readers to the enchanting world of 12-year-old Samuel Chambers in his debut novel, The Day the Angels Fell. His new book, The Edge of Over There, is the spectacular sequel to this highly acclaimed work. He lives with his wife and six children in the city of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and you can find him online at seansmucker.com, where you can also sign up for his newsletter, in order to find out when and where the Tree of Life will turn up next. Welcome, Sean.
1: Hi, thanks for having me, Kitty.
0: I'm so glad you're here. I have to say, I'm totally so super psyched about talking to you about your book because right off the top of my head, you're the only person that I personally know in any way, and I've known you for, what, 10 minutes now, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> who writes anything like this one thing that I started once in grad school that I'm determined to finish as soon as I Good. can figure out okay. you know, what the story is, so I'm super excited, so let's start with the first question, I've been telling people, you know, get ready to listen to Sean Smucker, he writes uh, Supernatural Suspense, because I didn't know what you called it, but what do you and your publisher call it?
1: Um, the term that we settled on was Mystical Realism, um, but it's just kind of in that in that speculative fiction, you know, umbrella, there's a lot of things that, that fit into that. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, listen, I don't know that much about you and your writing, but um, 2017, so just last year as we we're recording, was your debut novel, which was book one of the series. And now book two, you're just telling me, just released two days ago at As we're talking, which was last week when the recording will go live. So super exciting. Tell us a little bit about your background as a writer.
1: Yeah, so um, I really started writing quite a bit when I was about 20 years old. I'm 40 now, 41. So uh, in college is when I got the bug for writing. I had grown up reading constantly. So reading was kind of my first love. That's how I found my way into it. But then after college, I didn't do very much, uh, very much writing, at least professionally. I journaled every day and I definitely wrote a lot of words, but uh, I had a, I was mostly in the business world during that time. Um, So then in about 2006, I was approached by my aunt to see if I would co-write a book with her. She, um, her her name is Ann Byler. She started Auntie Anne's Soft Pretzels, which is a large soft pretzel franchise in mostly in the U.S., but also around the world. Um, Yeah,
0: I'm like, wait a minute, don't I know those pretzels?
1: (laughs) Yeah, so she was approached by a publisher to write her story. Um, but she's, she had never written a book before, so she wanted someone to come in and help her write it. And so I sent some sample chapters into the publisher. They loved it. Um, and she hired me, so that was really my first uh, intro into professional writing, uh, or write, you know, writing for money. And then uh, I started to write more along those lines. So I started to take on more and more co-writing projects. So that in about 2010, I started doing that full time. So that was, um, and that's what I've been doing uh, for the last eight or nine years now. Is is co-writing books, mostly memoirs. So then in 2014. Uh, one of my, one of the co-writing books that I wrote took me to Istanbul, Turkey, to write for a missionary who was dying of cancer and his, his denomination wanted me to write his life story with him. So I arrived there and it was just an amazing experience, but it was, it had a huge impact on me because he was in his last couple of months. I would meet with him for two or three hours every other day. Um, you know, it was pretty obvious that he wasn't doing well at the time. And so in that process, I really had to face my own mortality. And working with him is, was, was kind of the seed for The Day the Angels Fell, which was the first book in the series. So I wrote that book in 2013 and then self-published it in 2014. And a few wow. years later, I picked up a literary agent to help me get more co-writing work. And she read The Day the Angels Fell in its self-published form and thought that she could sell it. So she shopped it around, and we ended up signing a three-book deal with Baker, with Ravel. Uh, And two of those books are books from the series. So The Day the Angels Fell and then the sequel that just came out, The Edge of Over There.
0: Wow. That is a really interesting story. I'm so glad I asked about your background, because that was not what I expected you to say.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Wow, okay, so now I'm thinking we need to bring you back and talk about, you know, um, co-writing or ghostwriting and that yeah. sort of thing, in case people are interested in that topic. But let's stick on this one for a minute. So, so you had, um, wow, I'm trying to count in my head, you had six or eight years of professional writing experience before you even started your novel, and now you're well over the 10-year mark as far as professional full-time writer who makes your living this way.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: That's brilliant. Okay. So then, so three book deal, and this is book two. So is it book two of a trilogy or just book two? There is always only going to be um, the original and a sequel.
1: So the, the, it is book two of a trilogy, but the third book um, in the deal with Ravel is an unrelated uh, novel, a standalone and not, not for young adults. It's just a normal general market fiction. So, um, I don't have the third book under contract anywhere yet.
0: Okay, wow, and all right. So that's another thing that I wasn't one hundred percent sure on when I was reading. So um, I've been I've been moving, but reading every day your book, which has been you know fantastic. I am pretty sure that it is responsible for some of the odd dreams that I've had, but. I find odd dreams to be like the ability to go to the movie theater and sleep at the same time. So I'm cool with
1: that. (laughs) Nice.
0: So, um, okay, we don't want to talk too much about the books in as much as giving anything away, but I don't think that I really realize um, I'm probably a third of the way through book two and didn't didn't fully realize when I started reading it that um, there was a book one that was the beginning of the story. But just for everybody who's listening, I actually haven't found it to be a problem the way that you've weaved in the backstory. I feel like um, there was obviously something that was happening, but nothing that is um, keeping me from understanding what's happening now. But I didn't fully understand that it was a YA novel. And you said YA, right?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was a hard one to categorize because I initially wrote it for my kids, uh-huh. thinking through this whole experience that I had in Turkey, and and really wrestling with the whole idea of death. So the first book, the first book really hones in pretty specifically on the question: Could it be possible that death is a gift? Uh, and the second book is more of a continuation of that, and and. It, it approaches that question, but, but not quite so specifically. It's a little bit more concerned about, you know, wh- when does love turn into selfishness? When does our, you know, when can our concern or our desire um, for our loved ones sort of turn into this thing that isn't healthy or isn't good? So um, that would be more, more of the second book's central question.
0: Yeah. Wow, that's really interesting. So, so you've got a third book that's going to kind of wrap up this whole story. And then you've also got another different unrelated book under contract. So is that also kind of in this mystical realism, supernatural genre?
1: It is, yeah. So it, it I tried to write it with a little bit less of that in mind. It's It basically starts off with a funeral director whose father has passed away and it's the week of his father dying and him remembering sort of back into his childhood. Um, Mm -hmm. But there's definitely an element of the mystical realism in his remembering. So like in his, in his childhood um, memories. Yeah.
0: Now, obviously this is way different from writing. Well, when I say obviously, depending on what kind of a life you live, it may not be as obvious, from an American standpoint, it seems obvious to me that this is totally different from writing or co-writing someone's memoirs. But, um, since you came up with this idea in would, would we be right say, in saying Istanbul is part of the middle East or would that be called central Asia or.
1: That's a good question. Yeah. Cause Istanbul is, uh, I mean, it has a bridge that it's on, it's in both Asia and Europe. Uh, I think it's, it's probably still considered Asia, even though they would like to be considered more european i think but yeah Yeah. good question
0: it's funny i just happened to be at a friend's house so i'm in sweden and we're eating pizza and in their dining room on the wall is this ginormous really old map of uh well it's probably not the whole world because it doesn't have north and south america (laughs) but it's like europe and asia and it's one of those old roll-up maps from school do you remember when we were really little yeah
1: yeah.
0: yeah. Um but it's written in Swedish so and it's super old. So I was like I okay that must be this and this must be that and it turns out that our friend who's a teacher was saying yeah this little tiny portion of the country is considered Europe and across the water the rest of the country yes. is Asia. And yeah. he was talking just very briefly about how that can um be uh, you know have a sense of tension you know for mm-hmm. the people there. So I'm I'm just thinking about this what appears to me to be an unusual switch mom and I'm sure that you're going to continue with the, with the other. So I don't mean permanent switch, but to go into this, um, you, you know, and I keep thinking supernatural cause that's the way that, that I look at, um, you know, other similar books or, or, the story that I have in my mind, but, um, this mystical realism, supernatural, you know, looking at the world differently with, you know, the end of life and that sort of thing it seems like that area of the world would be like a real different place for an American to be thinking about these things and asking themselves these questions. Is that, is that part of what happened there?
1: Yeah, I think you're right. And it's such a mysterious place for someone, you know, from the West to be, um, you know, the five times a day call to prayer, um, the, the city itself is the streets are just like spaghetti. I mean there's no grids, there's no there's there seems to be no rhyme or reason to how it's laid out. You know, it's just evolved over time. And you have you have that interesting mix of it's now a, a Muslim country, but you know, a thousand years ago it was it was sort of the bastion of Christianity and uh so you have this strange mix of architecture and It definitely, there's, yeah, being there, it's easy to imagine these things that we call mystical, like just being every day, you know, just happening and not not really expecting it. So I'm sure that that did have uh, something to do with it.
0: And then the way that you set the books, though, was to make it with American children living in America, which it seems to me as a reader makes it even more of a dichotomy in what we would consider, you know, the real world or our normal life and this world that they're suddenly thrust into, which appears to be in our world. And yet, I mean, the whole idea of the tree of life being somewhere in our world or near our world, and then there being more than one, Whoa, mind-bending. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about, I mean, I just really want to hear you talk about, you know, the the story, how you came up with some of these ideas. And it, it just sounds so interesting to me. And I'm still reading it, which is why I'm yeah. just like totally in the middle of your story.
1: Yeah, well, thanks. I think um, I'd always, you know, I grew up in a Christian household. And I always was fascinated with the creation story. And especially at the end when... Uh, at the end of the fall when Adam and Eve are are kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And the image that we're left with is these two angels guarding the entrance to the Tree of Life, you know, and with this flaming sword. And I always, you know, I always thought in my mind that that story shouldn't have ended there. You know, like what happens after that? And so in book one, that's really sort of the impetus for the whole book is that, is that I, I sort of filled in my own myth to follow that. So, so in book one, it, it, it tells this legend of what actually happened was that the two angels who were left to guard the tree of life, one of them wanted to possess it uh, so that he could give the fruit to humans and they would be trapped on earth forever and that, that he could then rule the earth. Um, and the other one realized what was going on and at the last minute was able to destroy the tree um, using the fiery sword. So because that happened and it's the tree of life, it still grows somewhere um, after right. it's destroyed. So it was, I don't know, it was—it kind of just came up out of questions that I had. And that's a lot of the stories that I write come out of that, just wondering, you know, um, yeah either what happens after that, or where did this come from, or what if that would happen? And, and as I followed that line of thought, I, I just, I kind of stumbled into what I thought was an interesting storyline. So,
0: yeah. I totally get what you mean. I am a huge superhero fan, Um, and particularly, I mean, I live with a Marvel man, so I I was taught to love Marvel comics more than DC. (laughs) So, you know, I gotta have Wonder Woman on my side at least.
1: (laughs) Yeah.
0: uh, It's funny because, you know, after 10 or 20 or however many superhero movies that I've seen since Superman in 1978, you know, you think about it, you know, you just, washing dishes, staring out the window, riding a train, and you just think about superpowers. And Or somebody says, you know, what, what superpower would you have if you could have one? And so the, the kind of backstory behind my superhero novels, even though they're set now, in my mind, and I've never actually written it down, I keep thinking I should write it down for readers, um, is that superpowers came from when Cain killed his brother, Abel, and God had to give him a punishment And God needed to punish him in a way that would help Cain to understand why he was so angry and why human life was so valuable. So he gave Cain and all of his descendants supernatural powers to protect all of mankind and and walk the earth
1: forever. That's a great idea.
0: (laughs) I I just love it. You know, like you said, you just just have these thoughts and all of a sudden you're like, that's cool. I got to write that down, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, for me, I've always wanted those things to be true. You know, like I when I was a kid, we went to, um, I was in like first or second grade and we went to this little place close in Lancaster, close to our school. It's called the gnome village. And so they just, yeah. So they have like all this little stuff. You just hike through the woods. And then as you go, you know, they've created all these little like nooks and houses and stuff like that. And I was so, I wanted that to be true so badly. And I think, you know, I was, I was super disappointed as I kind of, you know, as it dawned on me, like this, this isn't true or anyway, I don't think it is, but (laughs) I think I've always, I just, have always wanted that, you know, I've always wanted there to be another side to the story. Um, In these books, I talk about it being kind of the other side of the curtain, you know, like I wanted there to be something on the other side. And so in my stories, I get to make that true.
0: Yeah. Oh, that is so cool. Now, do you think that you have other ideas brewing that are similar in nature? You know, the whole, like, what if and what if it were true? Do you have, like, more of the kind of stuff like this?
1: Um, the third book in the series will sort of continue along, along this path. Um, I don't have – not really. I just finished the final novel in, this, in my first um, deal with Ravel. And I'm about to send it into the editor. So that's the one that I was telling you about the funeral director. The, um, I I did sign a nonfiction uh, deal with them for a book that comes out in October called once we were strangers. And it's oh. about a friendship that I developed with a Syrian refugee who lives in our city and his family. So oh. it, it talks about, um, you know, sort of the refugee stuff. And then I have two more novels that will come out with Ravel after that. So I don't think I have anything else right now along those lines, but you know, I haven't really sat down and brainstormed for a while about story ideas. So
0: yeah, we'll, we'll a lot see. of deadlines.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, wow. This is so cool. So um, there's probably listeners um, who are thinking, I kind of have been wanting to do that, you know, write some speculative fiction and it works a little bit differently in the Christian world than in the, not Christian mainstream, however we want to say it, world. Um, it's interesting to me that there is some speculative fiction being sold in the Christian world because um, like when I started writing romance, I actually was um, sending it to Tyndale and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I didn't have the right tone and voice and like the right degree that they are looking for. <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious in case other listeners are, are thinking like, how can I, Hi, how could I sell speculative speculative fiction to a Christian house? Or if they're not thinking that, but they have speculative fiction, like what are some of the things that you've learned or different kinds of advice that you might offer other writers?
1: I would say not, it can be, it can be really easy upfront to put a lot of pressure on yourself to try and write a very specific kind of book, you know, like that's going to fit the Christian market or that's not going to be Christian or, um, you know, it's going to fit a particular publishing house or all that. And I would just really encourage people not to worry about that stuff, to really focus on writing the best book that they can write. Because I think if I would have, you know, in 2013, 14, 15, as I was working on this on the day the angels fell, you know, if I would have told anyone what it was about, they would have said, there's, you're just not going to sell that in the Christian market, you know, and, and so, and, 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 you know, to be fair, that was a lot of the feedback that we got was that this isn't Christian enough to be a Christian book. And the feedback we got from general market was, well, this is too religious, you know, so,
0: (laughs) right.
1: So, but, but that said, I think you just have to write the best book you can and, and hope that, it crosses paths somehow with someone who has that same taste, you know? So I was fortunate that my agent really liked it. And then of the 20 places that we shopped it, you know, I was really fortunate that uh, my editor Ravel Kelsey Bowen was handed the manuscript, read it, loved it. You know, these, these things, you just can't really plan them out too much. So I think, I think it's important to to put everything that you can into the book that you're writing. And maybe a lot of people wouldn't give this advice, but I just think it's, I don't think it does your writing any favors if you try and tailor it too much to any particular genre or, or house or market, you know, Christian or not.
0: Yeah. 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 And you're right. Some people have um, that view. Some people have the exact opposite view and and teach that as well. So it makes me think that um, to a large degree, it probably depends on the writer. I think maybe the difference, maybe between the two views, is the writer who just is trying too hard, mm. and has kind of gotten away from their heart for it. Because I, I think that you probably could write to market, as you know, some people call it, um, if you are still writing within the the story that you naturally would tell.
1: Yes, that's true. Yeah. But
0: sure. I, I totally see how particularly in this uh, field, you know, speculative fiction, possibly speculative fiction in a more religious market would be something that um, it, it seems to me and in the, oh my. Oh my gosh, how long has it been? Like 15 years <laughs> that I've been familiar with uh what isn't isn't selling in the CBA, uh the Christian Booksellers Association market, which I know at some point they changed the letters to be something else, but anyway, in the Christian market, mm-hmm. um speculative fiction was always a really hard sell.
1: mm mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think the phrase that you use there is perfect and trying too hard. And I bump into so many writers who that's the impression that I get is that they're just trying too hard to, to fit their writing into, you know, what they perceive as, as the most sellable form. Um, and, and to me, I just, I feel like if it's hard enough to write a really good book, yeah. if you're, if you're, if you're just simply focused on writing a really good book, you know, much less if you're trying to incorporate all these outside voices and everything. So,
0: yeah. That is true. I mean, I certainly feel that way as a writer myself. (laughs) So I had a question that just came up while you were answering that. uh, And here I go going, oh, what was my question? (laughs) (laughs) I just get so excited talking to other writers that sometimes I'm like, you're just being a little bit manic right now, Kitty. (laughs) Your book has just got me thinking. I mean, it's really Got me thinking about the possibilities, and, um, oh, and, which is what I was just now going to ask you. So in the midst of not needing, trying not to be the person who's trying too hard and therefore sort of falling away from your own voice and story that was naturally going to be rising up, there's still uh, particularly, well, in every genre, but it seems to me more so in your genre, a certain amount of world building that needs to be created and adhered to and figure out the rules of the world. So how much of that were you working on kind of outside the story, like, like not in the middle of the writing and how much of it do you think you just, I mean, I don't know, I haven't asked you yet if you're a plotter or a, or a write by the seat of your pants kind of guy. So tell us a little about about your process and um, and specifically as it comes to world building did you stop and think about what all the rules of this world were going to be first did you just write it and discover it yourself or
1: yeah i kind of i usually write my way into things so um what was really interesting to me was with the day the angels fell the first book in the series because i had self-published it and i had hired an editor to look through it before i self-published it by the time my editor Ravel got a hold of it. It was pretty clean and had had a lot of feedback. So she had some important important things to say and to speak into it. But it was a it was a pretty brief um, editorial process, and we didn't do a whole lot with it. Uh, with the edge of over there, the sequel, um, most of the edits that she was looking for had to do with world building. So. Um, you know when I handed her the the manuscript I think it was about 80,000 words and by the time we finished with it it was about 95,000 and wow. and the majority of that went into um the the edge of over there section so um you know trying to to build that world up a little bit more so the so the reader had a better feel for it that it was more consistent throughout she had a lot of questions you know what's this why is this happening and so um, that was a huge part of the editorial process. As far as uh, plotter or pantser, I I I used to not outline at all um, early in my writing days. And what I found was I would write myself into situations that just weren't going anywhere. Um, I I would I would find myself you know a third or halfway into a story. And either lose interest or just feel like, I don't even know what's going on, you know, what the big picture is. And so what I've kind of started to do is uh, now early on in the process, I still don't outline right away. I just kind of, my goal usually is to create an interesting character and really get to know them. And I feel like if I do that, a story will come up out of that. But now once I get to about the 15 to 20,000 word mark, I I make a conscious decision to stop and start to think ahead a little bit more and say, okay. And, and it changes, you know, the outline that I created at that point still might fluctuate quite a bit, but I just, I didn't like that sense of, you know, getting halfway through a book and then realizing, wow, this just isn't going anywhere. So I found it kind of a mixture has helped, has helped me.
0: I think I was, uh, talking to Susan May Warren a couple of weeks ago, and we decided that we are plotters. <laughs>
1: okay, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: I like that yeah. way of doing it. And I, I've heard other people talk about that too. Like the first, you know, uh, 10, 20, you know, everybody has a different number, thousand words are kind of just um, playing mm-hmm. and, and figuring out what kind of a story has been. And building in the back of your head, and then you're like, "Oh, oh, I think I've got it now." And then you kind of build some markers to write to, so that it's so that it's a real story with beginning, middle, and end. <laughs>
1: right. Right. Yeah.
0: Oh, fun! Wow, well, I'm really excited. I this is very interesting to me as far as like the genre and stuff. So I, I think I might have to read book one and then find out more about book three when it comes out.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: Now, the book that you just finished and are about ready to turn in, is that also YA or is that adult?
1: That's adult. Okay. Excellent.
0: Though I have to say, just for people who are listening, um, reading The Edge of Over There, I, you know, in no way was thinking uh, angsty teenage emo kind of book.
1: (laughs) Right. And it's really hard these days because I I don't feel like, Uh, the day the angels fell or the edge of over there really fit into the current YA genre. I'm not, I mean, there are some YA books that I've read and enjoyed, but I don't, I don't know, even with my kids, like I've got a 15 year old and a 14 year old and I don't really steer them into the YA section. I feel like it's, I don't know. I don't really like the direction that that contemporary YA is going necessarily. And so uh, I wasn't writing I wasn't really writing into that space but I think it's difficult it's a difficult book to to classify and just simply because of the, of the protagonist's age you know it's, it's just unusual to have an adult book with a 13 or 14 year old protagonist so I think that was kind of the the stumbling block as far as figuring out where to put it um,
0: yeah which is pretty much up to the marketing department anyway right
1: Right, yeah. They, they
0: don't really ask for any input from you on that?
1: Not really. I mean, they want input, but I don't, I think the final decision um, is made by them. And I, I mean, I agreed with it. You know, I did write it for my kids. I think the difference is that I don't, maybe a lot of, I don't, I, maybe a lot of YA writers or, or middle grade writers feel this way. But I don't write books, even though I write it, I wrote it for my kids. I wanted adults to enjoy it. You know, I didn't write it. I didn't try and dumb it down or I mean not once did I think, oh, I shouldn't use that word, you know, that's too advanced for a thirteen year old or uh Yeah. So yeah, it's kind of it's a it's a strange one to categorize, but I I guess it it was it was the right one.
0: Sorry about that alarm going off. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> um and and the one question I was thinking about when you were talking about that you originally self published. The book. Um, did you have in mind to write a trilogy when you self-published book one?
1: When, yeah. When I finished the when I finished writing that book, I knew there would be a few others. And one of the reasons I did that, partly was I really loved the characters and the story. Was I still felt like there was more to the story that I could tell. But I also, you know, practically speaking, I thought I was going to be self-published and. Had read a lot about the advantages of doing a series if you're self-publishing, just how it allows you to build up some momentum. And um, so that was was some of the thinking behind that too.
0: Yeah. And then, so it sounds like it was a little bit of a surprise when your agent said, let me try to sell it
1: anyway. It was. I, you know, I had finished The Edge of Over There. I'd finished writing it. Uh, This was probably the end of 2015. So Angels had been out for about a year. And I was getting ready to self publish the edge of over there. And I thought, well, you know, Ruth, my agent was mostly just trying to help me find co writing work like I didn't, she didn't uh, bring me on necessarily as a fiction writer. Um, Mm -hmm. But I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, I should probably let her know. So I sent her an email and said, hey, Ruth, I'm going to self publish the sequel to this, you know, this book that I wrote. And she was like, oh, Um, why don't you send me a copy of the first one? And you know, I'll just take a look at it before you do anything with it. And so I sent it to her and she really loved it and said, Oh, you know what? Why don't you give me a couple of months? And I was really hesitant at that point because I'd been down that road so many times as trying to get a publisher and trying to get, you know, initially took me a long time to get an agent. And I just, I, one thing I loved about self publishing was you write the book, you make all the decisions you self-publish whenever you want and then you move on, you know? And I just didn't know if I wanted to wait another year, year and a half for the day the angels fell to be published, you know, like, yeah. and I had, here I was, I'd already written the sequel. So it was going to be three years, you know, two, two and a half years before nice. this book that I had just finished would ever get out there. So that was a really hard, that was a hard, kind of obstacle for me to get over, but I thought, you know what, I'll give her three months. And that initially she said, just give me three months. And so that was like probably January, February, March. And we had two houses that were kind of interested, but we weren't really sure what was going to happen. And they, you know, it's just the process drags on. I mean, so they have their meetings once a month and (laughs) you know, Oh, you know, so we hear at the end of March, Oh, we didn't get, we didn't get to talk about your book. So then it's going to be the end of April and there were a couple times where I almost just pulled the trigger and said, Ruth, you know what, just withdraw the proposal. I just want to publish this book. You know, it's already written. But we yeah. hung in there and, and, you know, fortunately, things worked out the way they did. So, yeah, I mean, I've been, I was sitting on the edge of over there for almost three years, two and a half years. Wow. Um, it just came out last week. So, <sighs> That's
0: just amazing. Yeah. That is some patience that uh, a lot of people don't feel that they really have
1: yeah and it it's a little bit hard because you know, so in the meantime, I wrote once we were Strangers, this nonfiction book that comes out in the fall, and I've now finished the first draft of the next novel that I have to hand in and so now to go back and talk about Edge of over there, it's like, oh my goodness, I really have to like rack my brain to think about what is that book even about. <laughs> crazy.
0: I was going to ask you if you had to go back and kind of reread slash skim it just to get excited about launch week of this new story. I
1: was was really excited about it coming out, but I sat down just last night. I was talking with my brother-in-law and he was asking me questions about the book and I was thinking, man, I really need to look through that before I start doing these interviews and stuff because I don't know how much I'll be able to answer.
0: Oh, I totally understand. One of the one of the things that just is the way it is in traditional publishing.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yep. yep. Well,
0: though I have to say, as a totally uh, self-published author right now, um, also you know, completely open to being a hybrid author, but this is the direction I've gone. I keep writing things that are either too cross-genre, you know, too really just for some people and not religious enough or whatever the right kind of religious for other people. Um, or, uh, my first book, um, I wrote Chicklet, just as Chicklet crashed and burned. So, <laughs>
1: yes.
0: so I've, I've kind of always been in the position of being willing, but just wrong place and wrong time. But as a, uh, even a, a self published author, totally. There are still times when I'm like, uh, how did that book end? you know, yeah. the one that I
1: wrote. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know what, I would just encourage you to, I mean, if self-publishing is such a great option these days, but if you or if anybody listening wants, you know, really wants to be a traditionally published author, and that was always a dream of mine, you know, even as a self-published author, um, you just have to keep going, you know, like yeah. you, you just have to keep going and keep believing in yourself. And I think it's really important to understand that you can write really good books and not get a publisher. You know, you can be a really strong writer and not have an agent. And so much of it is about, you know, a chance meeting here or, you know, a, a relationship here that develops or a recommendation here. So it's, and the cool thing is with self-publishing, I think is it gives you the opportunity to keep advancing as a writer. So you can finish a book Get it out there and move on to the next book and not feel like you're you know just drowning with this one title that you can't get rid of or can't sell um and so i think you know just keep going keep doing the work and i you know for me that was that was such a huge thing was that when my aunt came to me in 2007 and said hey will you write my book you know i had been writing religiously every day for probably 10 years at that point either journaling or short stories and so, you know, if I would have waited until the opportunity came to me to write, I wouldn't have gotten it. You know, I wouldn't have been where I needed to be as a writer. And I think that's the great thing. It's just you keep writing, you keep writing. And then when the opportunity comes, you're ready. You know, your writing is at the point where it needs to be.
0: That's brilliant advice. That's, that's really great stuff. I hope listeners are kind of taking that to heart and understanding the, the power that there is and just keep going, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and every time i say something like just keep going in my head i hear dory the fish just keep swimming <laughs>
1: right exactly yeah and yeah. it's true
0: because the s- strength of writing is really what sells it so if you can constantly be getting better and better and better books out eventually you'll be interviewed by somebody who's like so you're just like this coming out of the blue, you know, big explosion of a writer, you're like this brand new. And you're like, yeah, the 17 books before this one just haven't been as popular. (laughs) Exactly.
1: Yeah, I know. I wrote a blog post soon after I got my first book deal with Ravel about how, you know, this has been 17 years in the making, you know, I had been writing since I was 20 years old, every day. And, you know, it wasn't until I was 37, 38, that I got that first book deal. So it's, It is. It's a long road. It can be.
0: But it sounds like you're happy and that it was a
1: good road. It has been. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's awesome. Sean, this is great. I'm so glad that you had such encouraging things to say to people. And of course I loved talking about, you know, the whole, how this, I I hesitate to use the word weird because some people think that's a negative connotation. Totally cool. Interesting. (laughs) Weird book (laughs) came about. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. So if listeners are uh, excited about my excitement and want to know where they can find out more about you and your books, where should they go?
1: Sure. So you can go to shawnsmucker.com. I have a My Books tab that you can check out. Um, I don't know how much longer this will be going on, but I know that uh, in the U.S. you can order Bake. Uh, you can order The Day the Angels Fell, the first book in the series from Baker Bookhouse for $5 right now, the hardback. Um, And I think that's just for a limited time. Otherwise, you can get, you know, both of the books wherever you normally buy books.
0: Excellent. Very good. Note to self, as soon as I finish this. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, excellent. This has been great fun. And just to let people know who are listening and not watching on YouTube, you are S-H-A-W-N, right?
1: Yes. Yep, that's right.
0: S-M-U-C-K-E-R. Yes. Dot com. Awesome. Sean, thank you so much. This has been great fun.
1: Yeah, it was really nice chatting, Kitty. Thank you.